You're listening to the Enterprising Expat stories of women who packed up their lives and moved abroad for love, a job, or a fresh start. What does it take to build a new life and business in a new country? What does it take to go from finding your feet to thriving? Find out how each woman did it. Be inspired, whether you're an expat or digital nomad, to bloom where you're planted. Hi, today I'm going to take you on a journey that starts in Germany, stretches to Australia, the Emirates, UK, Germany and Panama. Nina is an integrated health and nutrition coach, mother of two and an author. She has a lot of other titles and she will tell you more about it. Hi, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Hi, thank you so much for having me and for the for the very quick um, introduction. I, I, yeah, I think in a in a nutshell, I'm probably yeah, I'm an um, expat wife. I'm a trading spouse. I'm a mompreneur, mom of two, mom of boys. Um, and I think over the last decade, we probably fit in about six different countries and probably double as many moves. It's just popped into my head. I'm like, I wonder how many air miles you've accumulated <laughs> and have they helped with your moves? <laughs> no, shame. They come with all those different airlines that are not affiliated with each other. So total pointless. <laughs> but I I thought it's super frustrating that my um, son, I think he was like two at the time, and he thought that going through the VIP lounge is the normal procedure. It's like, hey, buddy, I've been waiting for this 30 plus years. And, you know, here he is in the VIP lounge having breakfast. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it's like it's funny that the kids think it's standard procedure. And you go like, no, this is this is not normal. <laughs> you got to have to earn those points. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So maybe when he gets to, I don't know, 18 and uh, he decides to go traveling, um, do you think that they will? Do you think that, you know, they've traveled so much that they perhaps want to do a year backpacking or is it just too early to tell? Are they explorers? Um, I, I don't really know. It's a very interesting question. Um, we obviously try to sort of um, encourage them. And I think overall, very, it, it's very funny because actually they haven't traveled in a, in a while. Um, so I was very curious to see how how the smallest one who can't remember uh, would perceive travel. And I thought, like, wow, this must be so alien to him. Um, it's like, um, you know, I be thinking it's tropical. And then we went to Germany and that was for him actually the first time. You know, how will he perceive it? And that was like, you know, the trees look different. It will be winter time. The temperatures are different. The cars look different. The people speak different. Everything. Um but he didn't really perceive it as, as that much. They sort of go, oh, it is what it is. And, you know, they speak different, but they, they are not that much affected. So I, I do wonder, and I think it's a classic thing of each expat, will those kids feel like they need roots or will they just continue that lifestyle because that's all they know. So that's going to be pretty interesting to observe. Third culture kids are just a whole topic on their own. Um, but I feel that even though we didn't travel so much as kids, just growing up between two cultures, um, it sort of broadens your understanding of people and places. And you, I think you more easily give people the benefit of the doubt um, because, you know, 
any somebody who hasn't left their country usually sees things one way. Um, <laughs> but anybody who's been in airports as much as we have and different countries, we can usually just say, oh, OK, yeah, they just speak more directly or, you know, it's no, they didn't mean offense. Maybe it's just a bad translation. Do you do you find yourself sometimes giving people that grace a bit more easily? Uh, yeah, yeah, totally, and a lot on, on my side. So I hope I don't uh, voice that sort of feeling towards my kids. Um, I think the classic thing is like, look, we just travel 12 hours on an airplane, and then people home have a problem of driving two hours to see us. Like, I think this is the most classic thing. It's like, you know, for us, it's totally normal. And then everyone thinks, oh, you know, why didn't you come by? It's like, well, hang on, why didn't you come by? Because we just did the whole journey. And then like that is, I think, the classic thing where for people sometimes driving 200 kilometers is a big deal. Um, while for us, that's like, what do you mean? Like, we just came 12,000 kilometers. You know, I'm not going to bother about 200 kilometers. Yes, I think that is the biggest expat gripe. It's like, I have traveled thousands of miles to get back home, and that's in the quotation marks. And now you want me to go the extra distance to go see you, and you're like, it's it's a little bit too much. It's just, yeah. Yeah, and it's super hard now for the kids where people don't understand that when I was solo, I would have a car, and I would have a schedule, and I would go like, okay, and here I'm going to drive here, and then cross country to see my other friends, to there, to there. And everyone is so accustomed that I do that, that they totally expect that I do still do that with two children in tow and possibly even a dog. <laughs> so we, we don't get that. I think that's perfect. I think next time turn up with the dog <laughs> and then that yeah. will make them change their tune. <laughs> Just turn up with the dog. That'll be excellent. And then we're like so confused. Like, why didn't you come? It's like, yeah, just sorry. We we just like to be also home away from home. Yes, because there's a there's a settling in process, even if you are going back to, like I said, home country or whatever that is. Um, you you've practically built another life and another home elsewhere, which we are going to get to. But I want you've talked about it with me, but I want us to go back to the beginning. You living and working in Germany, tell me how the travel bug bit you. How did you first get started on this whole living abroad adventure? Um, so it's like everyone's life starts when you graduate from high school. So I did that. <laughs> and I did start it in hotel and tourism, just because that was sort of what I had done in my free time to earn money anyway. So the next best thing I knew and while working for the um, five-star sort of companies, um, you always get, you know, you do your three years experience and, and traineeships, and then you can work abroad at any hotel in any country you want. And you sort of learn how to dream and, and you sort of, wow, I can do that. And that's very interesting. And you go like, hmm, where would I work? What could I be doing? Because um, in Germany, after an apprenticeship, you've been in every department, but you still don't really know anything. So you still have sort of to go in and decide for the department or sort of direction you want to work in. And um, instead of going abroad, I started working in Munich because 
I hadn't really figured it out. And over there, um, the travel bug were my co-workers. And to be really honest, we had a pretty shitty year. And, um, you know, work was pretty... I think we all were running very quickly towards a burnout. And my co-workers started coming up with that crazy idea of going to Australia, which 10, 15 years ago was sort of really exotic. <laughs> it's like today people travel to Central America and think, well, we're going to meet Pablo Escobar. <laughs> Um, that was Australia, you know, like you would still think you get eaten by a crocodile or meet crocodile dandy sort of atmosphere. So, yeah, I thought I was pretty exotic at the time. I thought I was, you know, the end of the world, literally. Couldn't be further from home, you know, the total opposite end of the world. Yes, I think that that's very true. I mean, anywhere outside your comfort zone where you've got a, well, I guess we Google everything now and it just looks so different, like, the trees look different, like you said. The air is different. The weather is different. It's it can be pretty exotic, right? So and then to to say it's something you say Google. I said back in the days, no one had Facebook. There was no Instagram, and my back then Digicam would hold about fifty pictures. Just to put it in a time frame of you know investigating where you go, I had a physical printout of the Lonely Planet. And I can tell if it wasn't in a lonely planet, it wasn't worthwhile visiting. That's how we traveled. I think I remember when Facebook started and I'm like, nah, that's not for me. So I, I, yes, even now I still buy guidebooks. I mean, I don't really, I'm a lazy tourist, but um, (laughs) like I just feel that, um, yeah, they're well written and they've got all of those really good spots and they've already done the research for you. I, I don't need to sit on a forum with, <sighs> I'm going to make some enemies, with the opinions of 25-year-olds because we're looking for different things. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you know, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon. Like, you know, back then it wasn't the destinations of the Insta crowd. Yes. So it was actually a real experience and not, oh, look, there's the swing over the water. So we get that one shot that that influencer did. No, that didn't exist. That's not how we chose destinations. And now we're really showing our age. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) Apologize. Age gap. (laughs) But you get to Australia. um, When you're thinking about it now, what are the words that spring to mind about your experience in Australia? The first thought, and I think that thought stuck with me all the way along, is like, why does it need a backpack? And why is traveling with a suitcase so uncool? Because I haven't been in a single situation where I really truly would have needed a backpack. It's just heavy. So that is like backpacking totally, you know, and then people would run around and I'm going to, now I'm going to be unpopular with outdoor boots and backpacks and elsewhere where I never left the city. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And I I keep seeing the same people here and I I have to, you know, it's like a friendly reminder back then. (laughs) When I, when I first arrived in Australia, I thought it was a really stupid idea and I had 500 euro to my name and I thought I was incredibly rich. And um, it did last about six to eight weeks, which I think is remarkable. And um, I did land in Sydney. And if I had any doubts, it was wiped away. I landed and I knew this was going to be great. And that feeling never left me. And what I found quite remarkable, I couldn't explain it then. 
But like now I can tell like this is like a total sort of emotional and spiritual transformation because suddenly I was in that country, which I didn't really want to go to in the first place, but I could totally feel grounded, connected and earth, like in, in an earthing process. And I could suddenly be whoever I wanted to be. No one knew me. There were sort of no rules. Um, I was amazed that I, I met someone who was literally um, loading suitcases at the airport and he earned a shitload of money. And I was like, wow. And he's so proud about it. And like that would never happen in Germany. And, and that really impressed me. I was like, wow, a lot of those people are sort of happier with what they have. And um, I was quite connected to, I think that there's something in the soil there. It's really powerful. And um, I, I really felt like um, everything was taken care of there. I easily found jobs. I had really well-paid jobs that I would have never dreamt of. And I mean, it wasn't like you know, something crazy, like secretary work. And um, everything always fell into place there. I had time to travel. I had money in my pockets. Um, I Sometimes we would sleep in a tent, but therefore would do fabulous tours like hot air ballooning. Um, and then everything, you know, it's like abundance and like synchronicity, like everything came to me without asking for it. So I had really two fabulous carefree years that really I think everyone should experience. Yes, yes. I love what you say about, you know, it was it's like a fresh start because you're in, in a new place. No one knows you. And it did you feel that it sort of gave you room to flex the parts of your personality that you couldn't do back home? Yeah, I I, I, saw, I, I became a real different person, I think. It, it really changed a lot from there. I mean, I I wasn't really asking for it, but yeah, it, it just, you grow into it and it was, it was amazing and a really amazing experience. And, and even though while living through it, I didn't really realize that's what that's what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Plans didn't quite work out in Australia. I did want to stay longer, but well, I had, I didn't play the game right, so I ended up with no choice but leaving. I got home for exactly ten days, and you know, I got home, hadn't seen my family in in two years, nonstop. Wow. And I kind of was like, oh, what now? But then a boss that I worked with in Australia rang me and he's like why are you in Germany I was like oh you know something didn't quite work out I had no choice but going and he's like well that's fine don't worry you can come and work with me in Abu Dhabi wow <laughs> so yeah 10 days later I packed my stuff and left <laughs> how did your folks feel about that um, I think they were as surprised as I was um, again back then this is like 10 12 years ago I hadn't heard of Abu Dhabi before Neither of the Emirates. I mean, back then, um, Dubai was still sent. And basically, what do you what you see now, you know, with the Palm Islands and Palm Jumeirah and all that crazy stuff. Um, I worked on projects that were part of that. So it is really, really crazy. Like back then, I was like, what are we doing here? Who the heck is ever going to visit this country? And why would you? And then just look at it now. It's like, wow, now it's called Bur Khalifa. Back then it was Burj Dubai. Um, and then I, I haven't seen it finished. Like, I think I left at, how many levels does it have? I don't know. I think I left at meter 680 and it's now 800 meters. I don't know. But yeah, it's crazy. That's absolutely amazing. 
Um, so it was about a year in the Emirates, um, very different experience uh, to Australia. Um, I actually met my husband, who was uh, Belgian. Well, he was my husband then, obviously, boyfriend and, and girlfriend. And um, I, I um, stopped working in Abu Dhabi. I went quickly home to sort of regroup and see what's happening. And we then had for a while a long-distance uh, relationship. Um, but yeah, everyone who's done that before, it's not exactly the most fulfilling thing to do if you see each other every three months or so for a weekend. So we said, okay, um, let's move on married base without being married, which could be an option. Let's explore that option. And um, he, he was, in that case, lucky enough um, with his company to get a project assigned in the UK where, in fact, we didn't have to get married, and um, but we would get the benefits where he works five months, he gets a month off. In return, we get actually accommodation paid. In the case of the UK near London, it was a very nice three-bedroom house uh, in the area of Essex. And um, so I, I was, back then, it's obviously European Union, so I had no issues with, with visas. I could I could easily find work, which was amazing. Back into my original industry, which made me super happy. I was like, awesome. I'm back in tourism and, and um, hotel business. And I can finally actually pick up on my career. Um, and then funny enough, I, I was in Germany for a short while and I tried to get work within my industry. And they're like, nah, you know, you've been out for three years. That makes you unemployable. I was like, oh, what? So I went to London and we're like, wow, this is crazy. You've just been to Australia. You worked in DreamWorks. Um, this is where, where I used to go as kids and they came from the Gold Coast. And then, you know, this is how I got hired because my team was Australian. <laughs> it, it blows my mind. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, like as an expat, surely you are kind of the ultimate tourist. You know, <laughs> you are like the long-term tourist. But for anybody to say, you know, yeah, you don't have that much experience in travel. I'm like, I, I beg your pardon? Excuse me? <laughs> and you're kind of like, I just spent three years getting fluent in English and all that experience. And they're like, nope, you're out of the country for too long. Like, no, that's all assets. Well, on, on the contrary, in the UK, I got a job because they like my work experience. They like that I had been in Australia. They know as a German, you have certain virtue, which is appreciated as a, as a workforce, if you want. So, um, so yeah, they're like my whole... And then they know we have pretty um, rigid training courses in Germany. So, you know, you you basically over... Back then, I was overqualified for the job which in Germany you would have to go back to in order to move forward. Really bugged me that in Germany, obviously, I was unemployable. While on the contrary, in the UK, I think I had about 10 job interviews and nine would have hired me. So I actually had the choice and I could pick, um, say, the, the salary was competitive, but still within a couple of hundred dollars price difference. And I could, I chose I really had a choice. I could choose between an hour travel or an hour and a half commute. I could choose between, I don't know what the salary was anymore, but, you know, I, I could choose between three star, five star. Um, I could choose between the departments, positions. And um, I think that says a lot. So from London, what 
what happened next? Tell me what happened next. I'm going to squeeze in the tiny little holiday that we had. So we went for the first time, couple vacation. I don't even know how long we were together back then, maybe a year or so. So two weeks, couple vacation to Barbados. Wow. Yeah. And I remember, you know, it's the first time Caribbean, all inclusive, you know, all the cliche that you get. And um, I remember sitting under the palm trees and I was saying, ah, you know, isn't it great? Palm trees. I wish I could live like this forever. And then I remember that conversation because we hadn't even landed in London Gatwick and the phone rang. And my husband's company on the phone suitcase is still packed, goes like, yeah, you know, um, you, we have a new job assignment for you. Next week, you're going to start in Panama. Well, okay. And I was like, okay, but but they said we're going to be here for five years, because in my mind, I had planned out my career. And, you know, I just had started six months ago. And I was like, you know, what do they mean? We are not to leave. Like, we ought to stay here for another five more years. That's not right. That's not fair. And, yeah, three weeks later, we had moved to Panama with palm trees and white beaches and just about anything or comparable to, to Barbados. So be careful what you wish for. I was going to say, speaking it into existence, but sometimes it just doesn't happen the way you think it will, you know? No, no. The, the universe has a strong sense of humor. <laughs> it really does. What were the arrangements that were made for you as a partner? Or were you accompanying spouse of? Yeah, that's where slowly the transition started. And I mean, back then I hadn't heard of words such as training spouse or expat living. Because I think UK isn't really... A typical expat country to me, coming from Germany, it's still, you know, next door. To me, it didn't really classify, nor did I feel that way. So in Panama, you actually are exposed to something which is an expat community. Um, so, and then it, it, it does come as cliche to some extent, right? Because suddenly uh, there was a language barrier, which, okay, I, I did go to, to school for three months, I still don't speak it fluently, but that is because in school you learn Spanish and here it's Latin American Spanish. Two very different things, just like Dutch and Flemish. And um, so you learn the language and then, then you have no other choice by looking for a job to actually network. And I think that's the, you know, that's the base job of an expat wife sort of thing, right? You you start to make friends, you have to find the best supermarket, you have to find alternative products to baking powder and, you know, you, you, all the little gadgets and gadgets and how these things work and run. And, and then, yeah, you start to network and you suddenly meet all these people in different age groups and out of different countries with different backgrounds, probably equally bored and and then frustrated like, like oneself is and yeah, and then whatever, you start to have coffee mornings, which I, by the way, really enjoy because that cup of coffee really means a lot more than having a coffee. It's really social interaction and sort of, you know, if you ask an expert, let's meet for coffee, that really is an open invite to, hey, be my friend and ask me all sorts of awkward questions that you want. <laughs> Also then, odds I need to be cut off your salary. And 
that really hurts. It's like emotionally, suddenly it's our money. And this is a decade later, no, it's still not our money. It's still his money and I spend it. How do you, how did you make your peace with that? Um, I don't think he makes me feel it because he still has no idea what I'm talking about. If it goes on about money, he's like, you know, it's our money. It's like non-discussable, non-negotiable. Um, so I think the men don't quite relate to the problems we have because on, on the men's side, it's pretty easy, right? He's like for the last 15 years, he does the same job just in a different country. So, you know, he gets equal amount of salary. He sort of, even the same people rotate depending on where we are. Like you always have to be friendly to them because he might see them on the next project. It's uh, So for him, it doesn't really change. I mean, it's similar boat, similar type of work. So he doesn't really relate to me being exposed to changing environment because it's my job to make it all work and um, so like sort of the trading spouse thing it went little by little so it started off with obviously not having income and um, being in a foreign country with a foreign language and, and lucky enough there was a friend and um, I had met her in Australia before so I mean this is crazy what are the odds so this is awesome. So she's up until now my very best friend in the whole world. Like, you know, glad I met her, probably wouldn't have met her otherwise. And, you know, she's, if we had a godmother, she'd be the godmother to my children. She surely is um, the witness to our wedding. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's awesome to have that sort of opportunity. Well, I said, it sort of went in gradually. So I had a lot of income. I had to I was still pretty young then, so it didn't get to me that much because I was like, oh, it's fine, I'll work. And within three to four months, I did find work. Um, and I had back my salary. wasn't quite as high. It was really just like I had a really fun job as an income service travel agency, creating customized plans for, for um, inbound service. So that was really fun, planning other people's vacations. So that was one of the best jobs and commission paid. So it was good. You work, you earn money. Um, so that slight imbalance was very quickly established. And we really enjoyed our time here. Um, it then changed when the project was finished or not even finished. No, actually, we got in the middle of the project because we worked on the Panama Canal. Um, we got called out to move to Doha. And there, it really, really did change, because then, by law, we would have, we would be to be married. <laughs> so while it was sort of on the horizon anyways, um, we basically got married because we had to. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of, you know, it didn't really matter. Like, it was time for that decision anyway. So once again, someone did the decision for us. We just went with it. I mean, voluntarily, of course, but sort of, Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. No, I, I understand completely because we got married because we were in Lebanon. Otherwise, we would have been happily a couple and we were we knew we were committed. I didn't need anybody else's input. So I understand entirely when you mean like, yeah, you know, it was OK. But <laughs> I mean, I, we, we sat in the kitchen in Abu Dhabi and we had promised ourselves to never, ever get married. So <laughs> we looked at each other on our wedding day like, hmm, you know. Here we are. Yes, those plans again, right? The universe <laughs> right. again. The universe again. 
as an expat, what was your experience of Doha? The planning sort of went, okay, we got to have to move to Doha. And I was like, okay, we all know if we move to Doha, it's very difficult for me to find a job uh, because back in hotel, I'd be too expensive in my position, um, opposed to other people, nationalities. And um, we sort of went, okay, if I can't work and we, we ought to be married by then, we may as well just have a family instead. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we sort of, yeah, I was pregnant by the time we left. So I still had six months to bridge. You know, it's like oh, six months is a long time in such a country. So I just began to close my CV gaps. So I studied um, tourism for 18 months just to keep my mind occupied, to fill in the CV. Um, yeah, which is sort of to your question before, like if I had a gap or, you know, if I took an opportunity, I sort of always closed it in with studies alongside. So back in Abu Dhabi, I did sort of health and safety. I did uh, make certificates towards that to sort of justify and, and sort of seal that package deal to, to actually be qualified for the work that I do. And the same, so I, I didn't do hotel, I did tourism, so I did start actually tourism management. So that is a closed package deal, and um, that's sort of how how I went through life. So I, I kind of think that's great advice for anybody who is an expat spouse who does who has a little bit of time on their hands. But with Doha, what was the process like again with like visas? Was this now more sort of you are wife of you you kind of don't even have an identity because you don't have a job title did that happen to you yeah I'd say Doha definitely made me officially to the trading spouse to the you know I thought it was really humiliating if you get a stamp in your passport and you know you're suddenly not Nina Bones anymore but you are the wife of and and that's you know my husband wouldn't even know what I'm talking about, but it's like, no, it's like I gave away my identity willingly, you know, I'm not regretting this. This is like, you know, by choice, no one forced me. <laughs> um, but it's like you give that away and you give away your salary and, and then to make it even worse, suddenly you're um, man bones or, hey, look, there's Louis's mom. Like, this is like the ultimate thing. Like, you totally are non-existent, you know, you suddenly someone's mom. And like, and to be honest, most of the moms I don't know either. So you go like, hey, look, someone's mom. I know her from school. Don't know the name, but it's the mom of that kid. <laughs> you see, I was always a little bit envious of the moms because I thought, you know, at least when your kids are interacting, it's a chance for you to interact with other women who are kind of in the same space as you. But I didn't have small kids. And I mean, for me, that was, for us as a couple, that was a choice. Um, so I had to find a different way to connect with people outside that whole mummy group, if that makes sense. I, I thought it was really easy when the kids were small and you had like mummy coffee mornings. School... It's really difficult. It's like, I don't know, maybe I'm confronted with my own school experience, which is like, oh, my God, I have to go to school. Or why am I here in school? And then they have staff the week and staff this. And it's like, no, I don't want to go to school. I'm paying so I don't have to. You know? <laughs> OK, no, I understand that stripping of the identity. And part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast is because my husband 
I, sometimes there are some things that you have to go through yourself for you to fully understand. And it's not something that he has ever been through. Um, it's not that he lacks empathy, but it it's, yeah. <laughs> so I get that, you know, so he, he just doesn't, he empathizes with it, but he doesn't get it. As, as in the expat groups, I see a lot of people asking questions towards those directions. And I'm like, wow, you know, I'm amazed that I think about those implications. Like either I was terribly naive or stupid, but I didn't see any of that coming. And it's like, and, and no one ever warned. That's it. Like, well, you know, maybe I should have been more on Facebook at those days, but uh, Gee, it all hit me pretty much by surprise. And I thought I was the only one. Yes, you, you're so right. I think nobody does warn you. And you have to be in those groups for somebody to tell you how it is. And that it's totally normal and there's nothing wrong with it. And it's sort of a, a growth process and a thought process. And it's just part of it. That That's it, exactly. And, and then also that I think as women, there's a certain amount of guilt cast on us if we kind of step outside some of the roles that people are happy for us to have. So because you're in Dubai, what do you mean you're bored? There's so much around you. It's such an exciting city, but you can't be a tourist for two years. Yeah, I always get blamed. Why are you not suntanned? You know, you live in a tropical country. It's like, yeah, you know, I don't hang at the pool all day. Exactly, exactly. It's very... It's difficult to explain if somebody hasn't experienced it. Um, and if you're getting into it and nobody in your circle is an expat, there's nobody to tell you about how to navigate it as well. So let's move on now to you in Panama. How? Tell me about your business, how it started, mixing it in with your move. Uh, just like always. So I was pregnant with baby number two and um, we knew the project would actually this time finish so we had really made it to the end of a project and as always you go okay it's the end of the project when can we move where and you know when and you know, I'm pregnant like where am I going to give birth and uh, so many times um, we had plan A plan B and plan C so that once a decision was made we could actually you know go with the plan while all the other times um, decisions were sort of made without us really being prepared. And then this time we actually, oh, look, we're in charge. So <laughs> baby born, um, we waited six weeks for me to recover from the C-section and um, we moved back to Panama. And Force Panama is like, wow, can you believe it? We're moving to a country for the second time. That must be a sign, promised land. This is going to be great because, you know, that's the, the country where we were like sort of um, as, as a newlywed or before that time. So, you know, all the big memories are here and we were super thrilled. Like, oh, we had such a fun time in our city apartment and downstairs was the pub. And so, no, we moved um, in a more quiet area in the suburb and, you know, big house, big garden and didn't see much of the city at all, nor the pub, nor anything else for the matter. And, you know, it, it fell behind of expectations. We were kind of really disappointed that it wasn't anything how we had remembered it or how we had expected it because we sort of forgot that we had two little people in tow and that our life wasn't really the same that it was the three years prior. And so that didn't help towards the emotion of being already a trading spouse and a mom of two and unemployed and um, 
I had then health issues coming up. It started with the mastitis and it started with a baby. Uh, I took antibiotics with the baby to become incredibly fuzzy and uh, he wouldn't sleep at the night. And you get the doctors telling you, oh, it's normal. It's a scream baby. It has a colic and, you know, nobody really takes it for, oh, it's normal. And oh, it might be a slight postnatal depression. Oh, this is normal. It's growing out of it, you know. But no one grew out of anything. It just got worse for another two years to come. And it got really bad. And I suffered from insomnia. The list of, you know, symptoms is ever long. Um, on, you know, on a shorter note or in a nutshell, I went from insomnia, adrenal fatigue, adrenal burnout, thyroiditis into Hashimoto's disease. And to the very last drop, the doctors refused to give me the diagnosis, even though I asked for specific tests. And I said, look, this is what I have. Um, so it was really difficult to get a diagnosis. And um, it's more or less natural remedy-wise in remission. And, you know, this has been three years of trial and error, self-studying, learning a lot, telling doctors how to treat it, where I was like, okay, um, I'm going to need to study this just so I can raise my voice and tell other women that, you know, don't be afraid. This is not normal. None of this is normal. And then there are ways of, of tackling it and healing it. And this is how I became an integrated nutrition and holistic health coach, which ultimately is my calling. And, you know, the best thing is that job can move with me wherever I go. And as we're already professional networkers as expert women, you know, it's just natural to speak about it. So this should be easy. If I'd been through all that you've been through, it would be my calling too. I'm like, yes, wow. It's more testing to advocate for yourself in the health environment in a country where you don't really know, if I can put it this way, the rules. Was Google helpful in, in diagnosing yourself and just, you know, asking, saying, you know, maybe it's this. Have you thought about that? Was Google actually helpful? Google not, but Pinterest. It has become my favorite go-to source and the most professional posts and pictures. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm, that is so cool. Everybody shares their story within their circle. But when did you decide that actually I need to make this a business? And then how did you make it a business? Um, as many situations like that, the business actually finds you. Like I wasn't looking, you know, I was zombie and zombies don't look for business, at least, you know, not like that anyways. And, you know, it's weird. Like I, I was really bad and um, just a friend of mine posted and this is how it really started. 10 reasons of doing a body cleanse. And, and she had written 10 symptoms and I was like, Oof, you know, tick, 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 tick. And I'm, I'm sure if she would have written 20 on it, you know, I would have had 20 symptoms. And I was like, you know, what are you up to? Like, she's a friend of, of um, in, I met in Qatar, and she always says to kids, I was like, what is that post? You know, what you got? And she's like, oh, you know, it's actually a program, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I don't really care. Just tell me how I get it here. Um, now, I was like, well, you know, she obviously has something. I obviously have problems here, and she has obviously something. Um to help me with, and I did that. And and people saw me, like at that time I was miserable, but I was in a gym because um, the kid, the baby was 18 months old and 
I had just gotten my local driver's license and I passed the fast lane because he thought I was about to give birth. <laughs> and yeah, I wasn't really amused. I can laugh about it now big time. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I thought I had a way to lose. And then, you know, to, to the husband, it's like, it's really tough for the husband too because, you know, he has so many jobs. He actually has a job. Um, he's a husband. He's a best friend. He is your partner in crime, your confide um, father. That's a hell of a lot of work, you know, if you and then sometimes in a country, it's just us. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's tough as it is. Um, so, yeah, working on a marriage. I had that crazy idea, you know, if I could just look like I did back then, maybe I'll be happy again. I think that's a typical woman thought. So I was like, okay, brilliant. If I can lose weight along the way, I can get out of that hell of a gym. And I, I did that famous body cleanse, and it was incredible what happened in those 10 days. And I did realize that I didn't lose weight because my body wasn't okay, that my hormones weren't okay, that my body clock wasn't running smooth. And those nine days did magic to me, and everyone else noticed. So they're like, you know, are you, you know, what did you do? Like, we've seen you in the gym doing crazy stuff, and then this is you 10 days later. So people naturally wanted to have the same product, and this is how business started. But it, it just bit retelling. But but that didn't really get to me that much. I was like, no, it's like I was like, wow, what is it? What is so powerful about it that makes me feel so good? And why am I still, you know, having this and that symptoms? And this is where it really started and put me into the lane of holistic health and um, understanding what in my body wasn't functioning. And then, you know, you start meeting people within the same industry and everyone knew a little bit more and you take a little bit more on board and you start to change, you know, stuff like you take dairy out and suddenly my back pain went away. And, and you now without really the intent, you, you become a holistic person. And this is how the process set off. And so many people started to ask me for advice and I would always happily give it and, and people would start to be, feel better and friends would start to feel better and continuously seek my advice. And I was like, gee, I really need to, you know, start charging for my service. And um, I did feel I would feel much more comfortable actually charging and giving further advice if I have a legit um, certification to my name. Okay, so then what were the nuts and bolts of setting up a business? What were some of the early mistakes you've learned from? Um, so I had to start with um, you become the product, and I was the product. And while I was that, it was super duper easy because, you know, I had glowing skin. I was radiating. Everyone saw the difference. I kept losing weight. I felt energetic. Like you, you totally have that aura around you. And then people just see you and they want whatever you had. And ideally, you know, it's a pill that they can swallow. And, you know, people get excited about it. Like whatever you have, they want that. Um, that's easy. You know, that was the really easy part, which I think the people struggle with the most. But what I then had to do was like, I just did naturally what I knew. Like I've been sales rep my whole life. So I just went with that. But then I actually had to learn the business part. Like suddenly I needed a web page and I needed business accounts and I needed, you know, tracking systems. And I had to actually, I mean, eventually you exhaust your, your warm market because everyone I knew knew. And you actually have to do real business and you have to learn about funneling systems and then SEOs and then how to post and market on Instagram. I mean, have even not caught my mind, crossed my mind to do these things. 
Um, so yeah, um, plus you actually do the certificate to be legit on, on being a coach. Um, that definitely that's been like sort of three years in the making. That all happened with Violetta. And it never stops. I mean, you know, there's a million books you can read. There's you learn the algorithms of Facebook today and tomorrow it changes to everyone's frustration. It's Were you doing it all alone or did you or have you now got like a virtual assistant? Um, I wish I could give the social media stuff away, but the brand isn't so, say, um, mature yet that I think, um, at least on social media, you know, I'm still testing a lot. I've just launched a new web page to make it more obvious who I am on the holistic side. Um, yeah, I'd say at least on the marketing side, it's a lot of trial and error. But on the consulting side, I very much have the way of operating. I have a clear philosophy. It's, it's a clear philosophy. It's a clear way of working, a defined um, steps. Um, yeah, that's the easy part. Yeah, I think that's important also. It's like you don't have to have it perfect before you launch it we always keep learning and developing things but let's get to now and this crazy time we are in so i have seen some of your posts on instagram um tell me about emotional eating and why you are trying to support people and get them to divert their energy from emotional eating so yeah normally my niche market would be people that have suffered similar like me adrenal fatigue um, Hashimoto's disease thyroiditis uh, postnatal depressions anything you know that's normally my niche anything hormone related so while I was busy with all of that um, obviously this madness this crisis happened and I was like um, people are you know now everyone sort of needs help and I had pledged I want to help everybody so it was pretty obvious to go like, well, um, everyone kind of needs help right now because sometimes we have good days, sometimes we have bad days. Um, social media is quite a negative place right now. and Everyone is in this big negative bubble. And I was like, well, this is, you know, as a holistic health coach, this is what you've been trained to do. Like, you know, this is the time of your life to, you know, be there for everybody. So we sort of created the sort of the bigger theme of um, staying sane in quarantine. And so over here, it's been about six weeks. And on a mostly day-to-day basis, I've just posted about blogs, um, you know, what do we need to stay sane in quarantine? And it's it's a whole body, mind, and soul package. And so the last week, we dealt about um, weight control um, and the emotions that regulate that, that very same thing. And, and so emotional eating is obviously a big driver right now. So, you know, obviously everyone eventually has to go back to work and we are horrified that we will have to fit in anything else but sweatpants. And, you know, so I, on a weekly basis, I hear in what's the biggest concern and, you know, it has been going towards weight. So we, we looked into it, what causes weight gain currently and besides the clear obvious thing of boredom, now uh I'm just going to walk past the fridge. Um, but there's also a lot of emotional eating in regards to, okay, but I'm really stressed right now and it's been a really bad day and I really need that chocolate. Um, and there it gets quite complex. This is in a form of emotional eating. It's a form of how our brain is trained towards um, 
rewarding ourselves. It could also be like, oh, I've had a really busy day in the home office. Uh, thanks God I made it to the end of the day. I really deserve, um, which is equally the chocolates. Um, so there, there's various aspects of, of emotional eating. And then there's that really bad craving because we are addicted to chocolate, which is a third aspect. And um, then it's just a, another part of where we remember we had chocolate yesterday and we really feel like, you know, we could have it again because we remember that we had it. Um, so we looked at different kind of emotional eatings and then the sort of core thing is you try to deconstruct your craving um, by analyzing, you know, what is it actually like, what do I really feel right now that makes me want that chocolate? Um, in my case, like if I had a real tense emotional day, I always want a cup of, I'm going to say it, yeah, Starbucks vanilla cafe latte. Like that's my absolute weak point to the point because I can't get it. I have it <laughs> in a jar in the fridge because <laughs> it exists here now. You know, you can't buy these things normally here. So I stock up on those. That's my weakest, weakest point. However, I am craving that warmth of the cup, that comfort feeling, you know, something cozy, warm, something I can hang on to. Um, that's emotions. That has nothing to do with the food itself. No, I'm actually craving warmth. So... I can make the choice. I can either have that coffee with 50 grams of sugar or I can actually seek that craving somewhere else. You know, I could give my husband or my children a hug and a kiss or we could sit and cuddle on the sofa. Um, you know, there are choices to be made. Um, so we have to identify what it is that we want. I love that. I love that you've actually taken the time to explain that, you know, this is about the emotion that that's driving the emotional eating. We're not trying to shame anybody about their weight or their eating habits we're just saying that there are a couple of ways that you can check in with yourself and if you're not sure how to do that then you are a person that they can get in touch with and explore that with is that correct yes definitely i mean um generally that whole weight loss topic um you know that, that's such a minefield. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's, if I consult someone, it is really just about that person and that particularly person's goal. It's not about um, if I let you write a food journal, it's not like, oh my God, I'm going to pick that you had that double sliced piece of cake. No, it's, you know, we just really work about individual goals. Um, each person wants to achieve something different. Um, for each person, it means something different. Um, there's no one-size-fits-all sort of program. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, I have some quick-fire questions for you before we round this out. So, what is the oddest thing that you have ever eaten in all your countries you've been to? I would say probably camel. Wow. Yes. Which is the most chewy, disgusting meat I can currently think of. I was thinking, you know, what's exotic? And then and I don't even think I'm that exotic. Crocodile, which is really tasty. I had it in three different countries. That sticks in your mind. <laughs> okay, I think you win so far. Um, <laughs> is there a, a holiday... 
um, that you really miss? Maybe it's from Germany or it's from one of the countries that you've been to, like a local holiday or a regional holiday that you've seen celebrated and you thought it was really great. Um, totally. It's not a holiday per se, but there is like once a year, that I mean, obviously Germany, a beer festival. What else would it be? <laughs> right? So obviously in my hometown, where no matter where people live, they get together for that year. It's like that weekend is blocked. Everyone knows that it's the third weekend in July. And, you know, it comes with all those traditions that if you haven't grown up in that village, you have no idea what's going on. But like, you probably think that what on earth is this? Um, but if you grow in that sort of environment, that that means the world to you. And I have missed it for, I think this is year 14 now. Wow. And, and you know, what's worse, I'm gluten intolerant. I can't even drink the beer. So. <laughs> oh, no. I, I don't even dare to go back home. I'm sure we're going to, you know, we're going to be like, you, you're not <laughs> out of this town anymore. Right. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. I'm hearing a lot about beer gardens. I'm like, okay, when I get back to the UK, it's going to be easier to travel to Germany. I'm, I need to try a beer garden, even though I don't really like beer. I'm like, I'll find something I like. I will find something. And then the last one, what's one thing that you always travel with, either from home or you try and stock up on it? Oh God, that would be so embarrassing to admit. Choose the choose the second thing. It can be a food thing. I always travel with like hair products because of my afro. Um, and then I always, there's a seasoned salt called Aromat in South Africa that I love. My husband absolutely hates it. I love it. I travel with it everywhere. Okay, I'm not going to admit to item number one because that is really embarrassing. Um, but the other thing would be um, my electric toothbrush. I'm really like addicted to it. It's like someone asked me what I would take with me onto a deserted island. And it's like, I have got them toothbrush. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yes. It's those little things, right? It's those little things. Oh, this has been perfect. Thank you. And before we round it up, I would just like you to say your social media handles and your web address and how people can get in touch with you. Yeah. So I'm a um, holistic health coach. Um, I do many, many things, as you have just heard. So my spectrum is quite wide, um, especially trying to keep sane, people sane in quarantine at the current situation. Um, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, both accounts running under Empowered by Nina Bones, as it is my mission to help yourself to empower yourself. And the webpage www.empoweredbyninabones.com. So pretty easy. Three times the same. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Enterprising Expat. You can help the show grow and reach more people by sharing this episode with your friends or supporting us on social media. Cheers, and I'll see you in two weeks.